the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, what are the effects the pandemic is having on kids? And then we're excited to be joined by Dr. Tom Nelson to talk about his new book, The Flourishing Pastor. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. Big news out of the Chicago Public Schools. Uh, It was this. Chicago Public Schools cancel classes and go virtual after union votes to go virtual. So the Mm. uh, Chicago Public School teachers took a vote. Uh, to basically say, we're not going in. We are not going in person. Yeah. And the, the vote was really big. Uh, and the, the Chicago Public Schools and the city's mayor have been adamant that students in the nation's third largest school district need to learn in classrooms. Yes. Yep. But now they cannot do that uh, because the union says the city has failed to meet basic demand. Mm-hmm. So once again, the kids are losing out. I mean, there's no other way to look at this. In Absolutely, my the kids Brian. are losing out. And we're going to expand this in a second to the effect of pandemic in general. New York Times has an interesting article out uh, about the effect on our kids. But when you read about Chicago public school system, they're Aubrey, the third largest public school yeah. system in the country going, nope, we're not coming in. Uh, I'm sure you read this. What do you think, especially as someone, I mean, your schools are out right now too in West Chicago, but I wonder what yeah. you thought as you read that for different well, reasons. Uh, I, I want to, okay. I want to pause and say, I want to speak out of both sides of my mouth. Basically, I want to honor the teachers and the terrible past few years they've had and how hard they've worked, how amazing they are. I'm so grateful for them. I can't imagine how stressful this is, how many parents have been angry at them, how like painfully difficult it is for them. And so I want to honor their desire to do what's best for them simultaneously as a parent. I, it is baffling to me that any city in America, but especially the third largest would choose not to protect our kids by allowing them to be in schools. Because what we know is that there are thousands of lost kids who get missed in this, Mm -hmm. kids who don't get food in this, kids who are not in safe homes in this, kids who are affected socially, emotionally because of this and are falling behind in their education. That's right. And the other, the other reality and the, you know, I've been listening to a lot of stand-up comedians for some reason, just something to do. And one of them was, I mean, she was really funny, but she was saying, if this year has taught me anything, it's that we do not sacrifice as Americans. We are Mm -hmm. unwilling to sacrifice. And she was like, I'm so disappointed in that. And this to me feels like a moment where I do not know why you wouldn't put the kids' needs first. And as Mm -hmm. a parent, Watch. I mean, look, it's nice to just roll out of bed in the mornings and have my kids go online. I'm not going to lie. But I saw what it did to them the past couple of years. Yeah. I saw how one of my kids struggled deeply emotionally. Another uh, was filled with so much anxiety. Another got so behind in some of his studies. And I just don't see any advantage to making this decision. I really don't. And at the end of the day, Omicron right now, as we know, is so mild that this is not worth. Can- it's like canceling school over the cold. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, schools are, are going to be pushed to the limit here. I know at our schools out where I live, uh, they had more teachers out yesterday than they've had uh, all year. Your schools uh, are virtual right now, like you said, not because of this type of decision, but because of the number of COVID cases and teachers, right, and the number of being able to keep the schools open. But I am with you. I think we need to do everything humanly possible to shift the focus uh, from us as adults to the, what's happening to our kids. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, especially when it comes to education. And here's what we know is that disproportionately, this is going to affect lower income students and they are going yeah. to fall further behind. And uh, that's going to be part of this too. Let me just read this list. There was at the New York Times, a guy by the name of David Leonhardt uh, wrote, no way to grow up. And he said, children are, st- are starting 2022 in crisis. He said, I've long been aware that the pandemic was upending children's lives, but until I started pulling together data, I did not understand how alarming the situation become. Here's the overview, Aubrey. Let me just read just these headlines that he has about uh, what we're seeing in kids right now through this pandemic. It says, children fell far behind in school during the first year of the pandemic and have not caught up. You could go find this at the New York Times to get the details with each one. He says, Many children and teenagers are experiencing mental health problems. Suicide attempts have risen. Gun violence against children has increased. Many schools have still not returned to normal, worsening learning loss and social isolation. Mm. Behavior problems in kids have increased, and the Omicron variant is now scrambling children's lives again. And so that's just his list. And again, there's descriptions here, but... Aubrey, it feels like it, your, your point being that that feels like uh, we as Americans and as a, American adults aren't willing to sacrifice. It feels like right now all focus needs to kind of shift from us as adults to kids. What's what's this going to mean to our kids? How are our kids going to um, now we're two years in, right? Like, what are we going to exactly. do for our kids? Doesn't yeah. that that feels like the shift that needs to happen? Does it? Oh, not? absolutely. hundred percent. And I think that's what I meant when I said, go back to sacrifice. Like at some point it is time to put the next generation before us. And the fact that, I mean, teachers have had the opportunity to be vaccinated at this point, still sure. wearing masks, still distancing, put measures in place that are appropriate. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we have to be pouring into the future of our city, the future of our nation, and that's our kids. I mean, we just absolutely have to put our own needs aside. And at the end of the day, I'm this is where I want to be careful because I want to honor how difficult it has been for the teachers. And yeah. I, they, you teachers are doing an incredible job. We are for you. We love you. We believe in you. We are thankful for you. At the end of the day, like adult, you're okay as an adult. And even if you get COVID, it seems like right now it's not this crazy, scary thing it was a couple of years ago, especially for people who are vaxxed and boosted. Now, I know there are outliers. You know, I'm speaking Mm -hmm. as one who have lost a couple people to COVID. So I know what COVID death feels like. But I am 100% with you. Like it is time to put the kids first. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I have this. You know, fear might not be the right word, but as you see the trending, and again, your your kids are dealing with it. Hopefully, just yeah. for this week. But yeah. like, I just want to move the ball forward. I, I woke up today with just like this. Again, I, I said this to to my wife. I just said, I can't believe we're here again with our churches. I know. I know. With cult with society with the are we talking about masks? Are we talking about virtual stuff? And I'm like, how are we here again? And uh, the mantra I keep wanting to say to my kids and others is like, we're not at March 2020. Like this is different. Like I know it feels 
crazy right now. Uh, but there's a vaccine. There's a booster shot. We know mitigation. We know what to do. Uh, and there has to be this move. And, and it, my heart breaks for these kids in Chicago uh, who are getting lost in the middle here. They're getting yeah. lost in in kind of this back and forth. So I do think you make an important point to highlight. We love teachers. Uh, I come from a family of teachers and public educators. Uh, we, we want to honor them. But, man, we have to do all our, we can to get our kids back into their schools and living the lives kids are supposed to live, like being kids. Uh, that's and, it. And that's what we need to do. Well, coming up next, Dr. Tom Nelson, he's going to talk about something to pastors. Aubrey and I are both pastors, and he wrote a new book called The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. Going to discuss it with Dr. Tom Nelson next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. And uh, Aubrey, we love to talk to other pastors on the show here. And with that in mind, we're excited to talk to the lead senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City, also the president of Made to Flourish. And we're excited to talk to him about his new book called The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd leadership. His name is Dr. Tom Nelson. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And it's great to be with you and Aubrey. Wonderful. We are so glad to have you with us. And Tom, we want, we want to dive into the book and also yeah. your organization. But before yeah. we do that, so that our audience can get to know you a little bit better, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. I mean, I'm a uh, pastor uh, in Kansas City. I've been here actually 33 years. My wife oh, and I awesome. left. Isn't that amazing? My wife and I left seminary uh, and uh, moved to Kansas City and began Christ Community in a little apartment. On a good Sunday morning, there were three members, <laughs> 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 including Liz, me, and my son, Schaefer. So, uh, yeah, we've been here. Uh, we have a delightful opportunity to serve a remarkable congregation in Kansas City. So, yeah, I'm primarily a pastor. Uh, love being in Kansas City. This is kind of where I've lived for a long time. And I also uh, serve a wonderful organization you mentioned called Made to Flourish. It's really designed to help pastors really integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of our mm. communities. We're, we're passionate about the church and about pastors and about the common good, which I know you are as well. There you go. <laughs> yep. I like that. I like that plug for the common good. Yes. There, well, we are so excited to talk to you about your new book, The Flourishing Pastor. And, you know, we don't even necessarily know all of the content of your book yet, but just hearing that title, I'm thinking, wow, after 2020 and 2021 seems like a perfect book for such a time as this. Can you talk to us before we even dive into the book, just how are pastors doing right now? Yeah, well, you know, I think we reflected, <laughs> we're all pastors here, yep. the three of us. So yeah, it's been really, really hard. It's hard for lots of people in our culture, but I think pastors particularly, like mental health professionals, have felt a weight of people's brokenness and hurt uh, my wife says it like this. I think it's exactly right. She said COVID has really amplified things at a mm. high level, a high decibel level. So pastors are tired. Um, they have decision fatigue. Uh, they need encouragement. Uh, we need the Lord's uh, strengthening right now. We need other pastors to help us. And we need to have the right uh, navigational guide because if, if, if we're off on the timeless guide, then we're going to be really in trouble. So we really need to get back to the basics and to what is timeless, not just what is timely. 
Yeah. And, and as we told you off air, uh, Aubrey and I are both pastors and top, yes, you know, wonderful. This, these last two years of COVID, including right now, have been just a roller coaster, <laughs> right? They've just been, uh, yeah. there, there have been times I've loved my church and my job. There's been times <laughs> I've wanted to quit in the last two years, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so what would you say? We have lots of pastors who listen. Uh, how do we avoid that kind of up and down of attendance, of budgets, of this? So to ask it a better way. Uh, maybe what are some of the things that you would say this is what you need in your life to flourish and to be able to keep going? Yeah, well, I unpacked this in the book. In fact, the book was, uh, you know, started before COVID actually with IVP. Mm-hmm. So, but I think there's some timelessness. I would say a couple, three things quickly. One is that the greatest need we have is not to lead well, it's to be led well. Mm-hmm. And we've got to get back to being led by the good shepherd. Um, we need... Psalm 23 and the good shepherd like never before. You know, I, I didn't understand Psalm 23 as a leadership text that I do now. Hmm. So I would just want to encourage every pastor, every person here that all of us need a good shepherd. We need Christ to guide and lead us. We need to be led well. Uh, and uh, we need to be drawn to deeper intimacy with Christ, not hmm. just effectiveness in what we do. So I really focus on deepening that intimacy, being led well, being shepherded well. Uh, and I hope that encourages people. Of course, we need resilience. Mm-hmm. We need, uh, you know, good decision. We need wise Sabbath to renew ourselves. We need a community. We never lead alone. I mean, that's one of the greatest dangers. We need other people who are safe, who are cheering us on, who will speak truth into our life. This is not a new thing, but we do need community. We need to focus on intimacy first, not accomplishment mm. uh, as the first goal. And with that in mind, Tom, I would actually yeah. love to hear a little bit about your organization Made to Flourish, um, because I know part of what you do is encourage pastors and yes. some of the things that you just mentioned. Can you talk about why you exist and what you do? Yeah, I can. And again, I hope, especially pastors who may be listening, uh, we have a wonderful opportunity for you to be a part of a national network. We're a larger national network. We're six years old. Uh, we were birthed with the hope of helping pastors flourish but helping pastors, particularly in the area of whole life discipleship, we use the language to integrate faith, work, and economic wisdom for the flourishing of their communities. It's a national organization of pastors across the country. I think there are about 5,000 pastors in our network right now. And it's a great community to be a part of. You can go to our website, madetoflourish.org. You can sign up. There's no cost. We, we send you resources. We have wonderful funding to just care for pastors and help them be more effective and more intimate with Christ. Mm. It's a great opportunity for any pastor. Again, that's at madetoflourish.org, yes. madetoflourish.org. Tom, I, I would love to hear some of your story. You've been a pastor for a while, like you said. And, and um, when was a time maybe where you, to use your language, weren't flourishing, where things were just hard? And, and how did you get out of that? What, what was your story in this? Yeah, uh, thank you for asking, Brian. I think there's a couple things. You know, mo- most of our greatest growth is when we fail, right? Mm-hmm. Or hard mm-hmm. hardship. So I've had a couple pretty big failings. I would say, just as a pastor, I'll say one um, is that about 15 years ago, maybe 18 years ago, I stood before my congregation and said to them, "You know, I need your forgiveness." And you could have heard a pin drop, of course, <laughs> right? When when pastors do that, you know, right. we go, oh, goodness, you know, like it's moral failure or financial malfeasance right. or something. But I was really serious. I, I realized that I, uh, I told him I've been committing pastoral malpractice, not out of intention. And that might sound provocative of you, but here's, here's what I've been doing because of an impoverished theology and an impoverished understanding of my particular role of whole life discipleship is that I've been spending the majority of my time equipping you 
for the slimmest minority of her life. What I really had was a massive Sunday to Monday gap. Hmm. And, and so that was a big change. And I wrote Work Matters that came out of that, The Economics and Area Love, uh, to help focus on uh, pastors equipping their congregation for their Monday worlds. Hmm. That's, that's the biggest uh, importance. I was, obviously, we, as pastors, we should care about Sunday, right? I mean, yeah. that's a part. But I was much, transparently, you guys, I was much more concerned if you looked into my heart motivation and my priorities and my prayers, if I'm very transparent, I was yeah. much more concerned how well I did on Sunday than how well God's people did on Monday. Mm. And that mm. changed just about everything at the church that I served for the last almost 20 years. And um, Tom, with that in mind, I mean, I, th- I think that's probably where a lot of pastors are, if they're willing mm-hmm. to be mm-hmm. honest. Yeah. I don't even know how to necessarily ask this, but if pastors are listening and they sort of recognize that in themselves what do you then do? Well, I'll tell you what I've, what I've done. And again, uh, out of my own failure, um, I had to go back and make sure I had a theological conviction that guided my pastoral practice, my pastoral mm. paradigm. Because for me, that was where I, I had to wrestle it. My theology was somewhat impoverished that led to a Sunday to Monday gap, that led to me not helping intentionally, much more intentionally, my preaching and my prayers and my discipleship pathways and my pastoral care to really focus on helping God's people really be called and equipped for their Monday worlds. I really believe that all of us are priests as Christians, right? The priesthood of believers. But I wasn't operating that way. So I'm just saying, I think we have to get back to what the Bible teaches and our role in equipping the saints for the work of service. And if you know that in Ephesians, it's not just inside the church. The focus that Paul goes is marriage and work, right? Mm-hmm. It's all of life. So I guess what I would say is I would have uh, asked par- uh, pastors to be humble, to be teachable, to look at what scripture teaches and then say, how is my pastoral calling aligned with that? Mm-hmm. And if it isn't, then I need to change my language, my priorities, my preaching. If I'm preaching my discipleship pathways to align more with equipping people for Monday. Many of us have a Sunday to Monday gap. And then one of our goals is to narrow that. That's really good. Again, Dr. Tom Nelson, lead senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Kansas City, president of an organization called Made to Flourish, and the author of a new book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. What would you say to the congregant, to the person who has that disconnect? They're like, I've never really thought of my job and my faith tied together at all. What what would you say to just the, the congregant who's listening right now, who maybe has that disconnect? Well, what I would want to say is that uh, their work really matters to God, <laughs> that God has called them. I mean, I'm not making it easy. Work is hard, and it's yep. a mixed bag of the good, bad, and ugly. We know that. We're in a fallen world, and we're fallen creatures. Our employees or our fellow uh, employees are fallen creatures. Our bosses are fallen creatures. Uh, but I would just simply say that uh, God designed us with work in mind. This is before we fell into sin. You know, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a picture that God is a worker and we're made in his image. And a part of that is work uh, that we're called to do. And work biblically is not primarily compensation, it's contribution. So from, from cradle to grave, all, all of us are called to contribute to God's good world, to the mm-hmm. common good, to our neighbor, right? To, to honoring God in our work. So I just would say that uh, many congregational members have not understood that the goodness of work begins in Genesis 1 and 2, not the hard of, hardness of work in Genesis 3. Mm. So we need to recover that. And then I think I would just say, remember Jesus. I mean, there's one little thing here. Remember Jesus, the perfect son of God incarnate, spent the vast majority of his time on planet Earth 
uh, as a carpenter or a, or a blue collar worker, honoring God, pleasing God, being fully human, fully God. And he spent three years as an itinerant rabbi hmm. uh, on his way to the cross. So we just need to understand that in God's uh, brilliant uh, redemptive plan, Jesus spent the majority of his time working with his hands in a carpentry shop. Mm. And that should model something of the importance of our daily life. It doesn't minimize wow. his call to the cross, right? I mean, that, I'm not minimizing that. That's yes. right. But, but just I, uh, I think all of us need to understand that God created us as humans with work in mind. And yes, work is a mixture because it's fallen, but God wants us to work. And perhaps, I think, I, I believe this, that in the new heavens and earth, one day we will do work. Yeah. Uh, it won't have thorns and thistles, though. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yes, yes. Um, Tom, you know, we're we're living in a, a cultural age where we're seeing a lot of, a, a couple things happen. Um, kind of big name pastors falling from grace for whatever reason, or churches that are building up their pastors in such a way that we have this sort of bizarre right. celebrity pastor mm-hmm. motif that's happening everywhere. It feels like your book is a word for that. And mm-hmm. I just wonder how, t- I guess twofold, how can we as church members um, begin not to do that? How can we look for shepherd leaders who are actually humble? And then how as pastors, can we just remember what our call actually is instead of becoming this other thing? Yeah, this is really important. And and the book does uh, address this directly. Uh, The first part of the book, I address uh, impoverished paradigms of pastoral calling. Mm. If we have impoverished paradigms, of course, there's internal dynamics at work here, a lack of virtue and pride and things like that as well. I'm not minimizing that. But you're mentioning celebrity and celebrity is one of the false paradigms or impoverished paradigms that pastors can fall into. But what I do want to say is that, you know, you can you can be a big frog in a big pond or a little pond, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not just the size of the stage; it's the size of one's ego uh, or one's focal point. And so, yeah, we have a lot of toxic environments today because of a false paradigm and a lack of integrity. And what I would just simply say is that pastors need to see obscurity as an opportunity, not an obstacle. They need to be very careful about visibility. I mean, if God puts you there, make sure he puts you there because visibility and brand and image, all that stuff can really mess anybody up, anybody up. So we do need a different approach. And I I try to give a timeless approach of uh, being a, a shepherd leader. That's the model of scripture. And one last thing I would say is that, you know, Jesus doesn't promise us a green room. He promises a basin and towel. Amen. And that is a very big, important understanding. Again, if God puts you in place of visibility, make sure he's done that and then have lots of accountability and people speak into your life and hold it very loosely. Yeah. Oh, such a good word. And Tom, I'm I'm guessing you do this in the book, but you talk about shepherd leadership. Could you unpack that? What's a shepherd leader look like? Because I'm guessing people will hear it and go, oh, that is different than what I'm seeing around me. Talk to us about the shepherd leader. Yeah. And I just really want to say that that is the primary leadership paradigm in the Bible from Mm. Old Testament, New Testament. The book is absolutely built around one text. I've never done that before. Mm. It's Psalm 78, 72. And it's picturing David. Of course, David had his failings. But but uh, a post-exilic community is pictured as this is the leadership for God's covenant community. So David shepherded them, notice the paradigm, according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. So in, the idea of the shepherding paradigm as the guidance of godly leadership, what requ- what's, uh, it requires 
is under the waterline of virtue or integrity. It's a Hebrew term, lev, integrity of heart, and then skillful hands. So I unpack that throughout the book. Uh, and what I simply want to say is that the Bible tells us that not only are sheep lost, shepherds get lost too. You think about Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you know, we don't talk enough about lost shepherds. Hmm. And many of us need to find our way back home hmm. uh, because we're lost, yeah. uh, not just sheep. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I do unpack it from the Old and New Testament, but particularly the Old Testament, that shepherding leadership is the primary paradigm of leadership. Just like the family is the primary paradigm of all institutions and all organizations. Hmm. And um, Tom, let me just ask you one more question with yeah. with this in mind. If if there are a lot of lost shepherds out there, um, or even just as we, we began talking, pastors who are feeling very discouraged at yeah. the moment, how can those around pastors encourage their leaders? I, I think that's a brilliant question. So a couple of things I would say is uh, be a safe place for a pastor to be safe with you. Mm-hmm. And then also... Uh, be a friend. You know, pastors mm. need friends that are safe and encourage pastors that their identity is in Christ and that intimacy with Christ and others is the highest priority, not achievement or success. I mean, I'm all for doing it well and being a good leader, obviously. Yeah. But so many times pastors have internal stuff they're dealing with and then external pressure that they feel like they never measure up. Mm. Love them for who they are because Christ loves them, because they're of an incredible worth before God and encourage them lastly, not just to know God, but to be known by God. You know, Paul says it to the Galatians. He says, you know, the the ultimate is not just to know God is to be known by him. So encourage them with the truths of scripture, their identity and love them as they are and be safe with them. That's a great word. Again, Dr. Tom Nelson is the founder and lead senior pastor of Christ Community Church. Love to have you on again sometime to talk about how uh, what it was like to start a church with your family. I'd <laughs> love to do <laughs> yeah, that. I would, I would love to do that. And thank you for the opportunity, Brian and Aubrey. It's a delight to visit you. And thank you for being pastors. Your work matters, too. No, so we really going. appreciate oh, thanks, that. Tom. Um, I'd encourage people to go to madetoflourish.org. You can also follow them on Twitter at Made to Flourish. And go pick up the new Tom's new book, The Flourishing Pastor, Recovering the Lost Art of Shepherd Leadership. Tom, this was wonderful. Thanks so much for being with us today. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Daylene Joy Fisher. She's the Assistant Provost Dean and Assistant Professor of English at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. She's also the co-author of Academic Writing and the Emerging Scholar. And we are thrilled to talk to her about her brand new book, Resisting the Marriage Plot. Daylene, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. Hey, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I um, actually began uh, my journey for education by homeschooling my kids Mm. several years ago when they were little, and I just fell in love with it. We eventually decided we wanted to send them to a private Christian school. From there, I began teaching English and just fell in love with the classroom. I fell in love with what literature can do for us how we can be involved in conversations with others throughout history, um, people from different cultures. And that really led me to pursuing my master's degree and just diving right into higher ed about a decade ago. And it's been just a really um, wild ride for me, actually. And so I just love the idea of 
engaging in the bigger conversations because I think that changes us on a practical level as well. That's great. Daylene, again, the new book is called Resisting the Marriage Plot. Uh, let's start at kind of 50,000 feet. Just tell us the the overview of the book. Why did you write this book? Kind of what is the purpose of Resisting the Marriage Plot? Well, I began with my master's degree perhaps being, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but of course, in English studies, the bent is very feminist and very, you know, down with the patriarchy, that kind of discussion is very common. And so I, I did all that research. I did all of that reading. But what I actually discovered um, as a result of that was that the narrative wasn't completely accurate, yeah. that women who had a relationship with God and when that was depicted in the text mm-hmm. that we were reading, that there was a change when authors were writing um, who had a relationship with the Lord or who claimed some form of that, that their books were different Mm -hmm. and that women were actually resisting this idea that their redemption came through marriage and that their husband's redemption should come through marriage. Because that was actually a very, very common theme throughout the 1800s and and 17 and 1800s, actually. So um, the book really centers around the idea that marriage is not the goal of our relationship with Christ, Hmm. (laughs) that that is not where we should land as men or women. Our relationship with Christ should be the goal of our relationship with Christ. And in in many cases, we do have a fruitful outpouring of a great marriage. And, you know, I, I'm blessed with, with a good marriage as well, but that shouldn't be our goal. And so it was really transformative when women in the early 1800s were writing that, hey, there's more to being a woman than being a wife. Hmm. Being a wife is great, but God should be your Lord, Hmm. capital L, not your husband. Hmm. And that was really transformative. And we we see that in the novels that I write about. Daylene, for our listeners who may not be familiar with this concept of the marriage plot, Mm -hmm. would you just unpack what this is literarily and then um, perhaps, you know, kind of dive in a little bit deeper to some of the some of the lessons that you learned in resisting the marriage plot. Mm-hmm. Well, the marriage plot is just basically the rom-com, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, they say that Jane Austen invented that, um, you know, boy and girl meet. The, the guy is messed up. He's kind of a bad guy. Um, we call this the Byronic hero oftentimes. And he meets the sweet girl and because she's so lovely and beautiful always, I mean, she has to be pretty as well Mm. as um, perfect morally that her goodness will somehow become part of who he is as a person. And then he becomes transformed. Hmm. And then of course they marry because she turned this bad guy into a good guy. And so that's one of the marriage plots. The the name the marriage plot is a little deceiving because it's it could be better named resisting a marriage plot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the is 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 more common. And this was really, really common in um, the time period that we're talking about. So it's very dangerous to think about it that way mm. because we're not meant to be the saviors of yeah. Yeah. Um, and then ironically, I think the resistance comes in where at the same time, women were supposed to be 
sort of transforming their men by their goodness, they also had very little agency or Hmm. the ability to act within society because they actually lost all of their property rights when they became married. Um, You know, some of the theology at the time when the Protestant Reformation happened and the priest became um, not really a part of the family life, the husband kind of became the Lord of the home. And this is kind of what we do as Protestants. And that's okay, except when the husband then becomes that one mediator between the wife and God. So she was, she was put in this little, really like stifled place of influence, which is Mm. a weird place to be. And so the authors um, that I studied wrote heroines who actually resisted that idea. So Mm. we have women who actually left abusive marriages, women who didn't marry the man who she was supposed to reform women who, um, were actually seduced as young girls and impreg- you know, became pregnant and then did not ultimately marry the man who seduced her, which would have been the normal marriage plot. So hmm. um, that's what I saw in some of these novels. And what was really cool about that is those novels were written by women, hmm. um, women who identified as Christ followers, who claimed Christianity. And it's lots of different types of Christianity, um, different ways that, that plays out with the authors and their varied lives, but um, the fact that they knew that, hey, because I have this relationship with God, I'm going to write this heroine here who relies on God first in order to resist this very oppressive idea of what marriage is supposed to be about and this very debilitating idea of what it means to be a woman. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. And Daylene, uh, Aubrey and I are both pastors, uh, and so I guess I'm wondering, uh, I believe in everything you're saying. How do we fight against this in churches? What's the message we need to be sharing? Because we want people to be treating Jesus as Lord, right? Like not their right. marriage, not this. How, what are what, what are maybe some practical things we could be doing within the church to kind of change this narrative? I think that we focus too much on the marriage and less on our relationship with the Lord. Mm. You know, I mean, and this is a very common issue where, my daughter and I were actually talking about this last night about what it means to be single. She's in her early twenties. And she said that we've put people into a very, very difficult position where we say, Oh, it's, you know, don't date too much. That's, that's not a good thing to do, but also be married by the time that you're 24. If you're a good, (laughs) if you're a good Christian girl. (laughs) And so, you know, I would ask the church not to put women into a double bind where, you know, either choice is a bad choice, be a good girl but also um, don't actually do anything and let us direct your lives. That's it's, it still happens in the church. I think um, I think we need to empower women to use their voice. And um, when they do have a spiritual gift to step into those spiritual callings yeah. and those giftedness. Um, and that's something that, that we're learning to do now and it's exciting, but um, marriage cannot be, we shouldn't be, sharing. I mean, I think Jackie Hill Perry talks about the difference between the heterosexual gospel and just the gospel, you mm-hmm. know, just like we need to be um, sharing the gospel, not the gospel of getting married, hmm. um, <laughs> which tends to be what we do. Yeah. 
And Daylene, um, I know this isn't necessarily a marriage book, but I'm, I'm thinking about things culturally like The Bachelor, for instance, that yeah. perhaps give us a very twisted view of love and marriage and in a sense is another version of the marriage plot. Right. And I'm I just wonder, wondering, how do we resist things like that? How do we begin to engage in a healthier view of marriage? I just think we have to get rid of the idea that what it means to be a woman um, and what femininity means is quietness yeah, <laughs> and holding our tongue. And this isn't to say that we need to be brash, um, unnecessarily outspoken. I think that for all people, whether you're a male or a female, resisting the marriage plot just means asking the Lord, what do you have for me? And that may or may not include marriage. Um, and I just don't want women staying in abusive situations where, you know, there's multiple instances of, and I know God, I know the Lord redeems these situations, um, but it shouldn't be necessarily applauded <laughs> when somebody chooses to, to stay in an abusive situation, um, mm. which I think that we've been in those situations in the past. Yeah. Daylene, thank you so much. It's been so good to have you with us. Where can people find you? Where can people find your books? Where can people connect with you? Give us all of the places people can connect with you. Sure. Well, my books are, the book is everywhere. Books are sold. Amazon, IVP. I would love it if people bought straight from the publisher. Um, Walmart, Target, you know, Barnes & Noble. You, they can follow me on Twitter, Daylene Joy. Um, and then I have a website that should be live here soon as well, DaleneJoy.com. Wonderful. Well, again, we've been talking with Dr. Daylene Joy Fisher, the Assistant Provost Dean and Assistant Professor of English at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. We've been talking with her about her brand new book, Resisting the Marriage Plot, Faith and Female Agency in Austin, Bronte, Gaskell, and Wollstonecraft. Daylene, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thank you guys very much. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. I'm Aubrey Sampson, joined by my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad to have you with us. So I wanted to turn and talk a little bit about the topic of kindness, something that we're passionate about here at The Common Good. And part of why we exist at The Common Good, we like to remind our listeners of this, is you know, there's a lot of places in our world right now that are incredibly divisive and a lot of topics where we just do not see eye to eye. And I know your passion, Brian, and my passion is really to talk about things that are difficult, we may disagree with, but in a way that brings honor and dignity and listening ears to the other so that we can just be a better witness for the gospel. At the end of the day, our hope is to break all of us out of our echo chambers and do a better job of practicing nuance and kindness. And so it's interesting. I was on YouTube and I stumbled across this video of Candace Cameron and Kirk Cameron, who we'll have to talk about in just a minute, um, talking about this very thing. How do you speak the truth in love when you disagree with other people? How do you show kindness when people aren't being kind to you? And so I thought it was just very common good and, and something perfect for us to talk about. But Brian, before we dive into what they say, here's what I want to know. Growing up, were you a Growing Pains fan? Were you a Full House fan? Like, were you a Cameron family uh, fan? 
Uh, I was a big Growing Pains fan. Okay. Really enjoyed Growing Pains. I did not watch Full House, and I don't think that was for any reason except wasn't it a Friday night show? And I it was. It a, was one of the Friday night lineup shows. Yeah. We had a church program we'd always go to called Boys Brigade on Friday. Night. <laughs> I, I feel that. like I never got into Full House or what was the other one with uh uh. Oh, what was Urkel? What was Urkel? Oh, uh, Family, Family Matters. Matters. Yeah. 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 So I wasn't against them. I just never got into them. But Growing I Pains see. loved Growing Pains. Michael oh, Seaver and all those. Absolutely. Oh. How about you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Mike Seaver was like the first great love of my life. Like, I think <laughs> I think if Kevin would let me, I might still have posters of him on my wall. Like, I love Mike Seaver. And then I was a big Friday night, whatever that Friday night lineup was, I would stay at home and watch it on Friday night. So, yeah. So it's fun to see Candace and Kurt Cameron really be people who are um, successful in the Hollywood industry, but also really kind of claiming their faith boldly and strongly and publicly. And Kurt Cameron actually has a show. This is the YouTube video that I was referring to where he brought Candace on and um, interviewed her. It was really fun to see brother and sister interact with one another. And I, I want to play some of that audio where they begin to talk about what it is to respond with kindness and how we show love when people disagree with you. But really quick, Brian, I have to tell you that they had a funny uh, conversation at the beginning where he was just talking about, hey, I mean, you're successful and all, but we all know that Growing Pains was a better show than Full House. (laughs) That was pretty funny. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, let's go ahead and take a listen to Candace Cameron and Kurt Cameron's conversation about kindness. Candace, you you, uh, spent years on a, a worldwide stage sharing your views alongside other people who share very different views. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those views could be personally offensive. Sometimes they can be dishonoring to God. Sometimes uh, ratings get better when you ditch the kindness and you really go at each other. But you you never really did that. And I think that's one of the things that people appreciate about you. How do you manage to stay kind with people who are not being kind in return? I always try to think about their perspective or where they're coming from. Mm-hmm. From, um, Of course, sometimes if, if we're talking about maybe an angry person, there's probably a lot of hurt behind that. Mm. I'm not a psychologist, obviously, but there, you know, there, there's a lot to that that we can look into and thought, you know, they've probably been, been burned or hurt in some way yeah. that they now feel very passionate and can be aggressive about this perspective. So I think trying to look at it, hear the circums- or hear their perspective and have empathy can help diffuse that. But, you know, a gentle voice, it, it, it always diffuses, or I shouldn't say always, but for the most part, I believe it will diffuse a situation. And that's why yeah. I've always tried to keep that gentle, calm voice in the face of an yeah. argument. Yeah, and, 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 and again, that's just proving God's words true. In, in Proverbs, it says that a gentle word, a kind word, mm-hmm. will just sort of like calm a situation, mm-hmm. but an angry word is going to stir up even more yeah. strife. What's harder? Is, is it harder to stay kind to people who don't understand your Christian faith <laughs> and they're just sort of railing against your worldview? Or is it harder to, to stay kind with people who actually have Bible verses in their Instagram bio and they're still railing against you? <laughs> Yeah, this is like an easy question to answer. Uh, I would much rather talk to a person that is not a faith that's angry at me. It's much easier, actually, than to talk to a person of faith that 
that strongly disagrees or doesn't think that I'm Christian enough or I don't have the right theology or I'm a different denomination and get so angry when we're supposed to be one body in Christ. And yes, of course, there are going to be differences in theology and denomination and all of yeah. that. But I find it much more difficult to talk to those people, which makes me so sad yeah, we should for be- the body of Christ. Yeah. All right. So I, I, I really appreciate that because they, they didn't actually say the name of The View, but they, mm-hmm. they nodded to the show that she was on, which was The View, where essentially they were there to disagree with each other. And sometimes they did not do so with kindness. But Candace Cameron on that show, I, I didn't watch it all the time. But anytime I did, she kept her cool, even when people were blatantly right. frustrated with her about her more conservative beliefs or her Christian values. And I appreciated that now she's saying, yeah, I did that intentionally because I wanted to show God's love, even to those who were like, pretty hard with me sometimes. And I think that's a good example for all of us, Brian. So you're a more passive person, I think, sometimes. Mm -hmm. When people come at you or people are angry at you, I don't know how often that happens with you because you're so likable. (laughs) Are you coming at me right now? (laughs) I'm coming for you, Brian. But do you tend to respond passively or did I miss that? Do you tend to respond in anger? Like, how How do you respond to people who aren't being kind to you, I should say? I, I respond, I respond passively. It's yeah. a struggle of mine. I try to placate the situation, make everything better. I mm-hmm. like it. I like calm waters, but, mm-hmm. uh, so that's, and it's something that I've been working on. I think I'm getting better at kind of engaging conversations, but I don't like uncomfortableness around me. But it, this whole conversation strange in a sense, Aubrey, because how many, how many times have we talked about kindness and civility and stuff? And it feels like as adults, we're needing to have like, conversations that we used to only have with our second graders and our third graders. Like, <laughs> so be nice. True. Don't say mean things. Be civil. Uh, be a <laughs> right. kind person. Like you're like, what? what's next? Telling adults to eat their vegetables? Like, what? <laughs> like this is this is what's really weird about it. We've we've regressed as a culture to the point that we need to be having these child like conversations. Mm. But yet con- it's just such an important deal right now. Like start being kind, especially for the Christ follower, we say yeah. that over and over again, yeah. civility and kindness in your disagreement, disagree without being disagreeable is another mm. way to put it, uh, is a way to shine the light of Christ in our culture right now. It, I, I so appreciate you saying that because it does feel like we're sort of back to like, okay, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. And like, but we mean that, you know, like that actually feels like the bar that adults in America need right now in order to just be decent human beings. But you're right, even more so for the Christian. Like, what if your witness for Jesus is simply you being kind? You mm-hmm. know, I mean, it's like, exactly. it is crazy to think that it feels like after the past couple of years we've had that the Holy Spirit is just inviting us back to these very basic, That's right. like civil rules of engagement, just be kind. And so I appreciate that you said that, Brian. Be, disagree without being disagreeable or like Candace Cameron was talking about, just talk with a con- kind voice, mm-hmm. respond with kindness, even if people aren't being kind to you. And somehow that will honor God. Mm. Well, we hope that that encourages you if you're dealing with someone who's disagreeing with you, or maybe it challenges you if you're the disagreeable person. Coming up next, we're going to talk about something, Brian, that I discovered in a book that I'm reading 
that I think will be encouraging for all of us. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and it is the end of today's show. And that means we want to bring you something encouraging, inspiring, or challenging. And Brian, a few weeks ago, we had on an author named Ruth Show Simon. She's the author of When Striving Cease, Replacing the Gospel of Self-Improvement with the Gospel of Life-Transforming Grace. And I don't know if you remember, but when she was on the air, I was like, Oh, dang, I need to read that book. Like everything she was saying, I was just so moved by. So Kevin actually got me her book for Christmas and I've been reading it. And there was a section, just a small paragraph that I wanted us to, I wanted us to hear, wanted to share with our listeners and then have you and I respond to because I feel like it's, um, it's something that connects to all of us and the struggle that we all have really to, I don't know, to achieve or have the approval of other people and and ultimately to try to save ourselves when we seek after those things. So if you're okay, I'm going to read you a paragraph and then we'll just talk about it. All right. So again, this is from Ruth Cho Simon's book, When Striving Sees. Here's what she says. In an interview for GQ, Danish psychologist Sven Brinkman pointed out that our self-help craze the imperative to perform and be flexible and optimize yourself all the time has become pathological with us becoming victims of self-optimization fatigue. He pinpointed the problem with self-betterment and the exhausting pursuit of arrival at the finish line of your best self, saying, it's a process without end. If we're only okay as long as we are striving, moving, developing, then we're never okay. Then she goes on to say, we want to feel okay. We want to be enough. We want to arrive at the finish line as the winners. And we keep believing we can make it happen if we just optimize our performance and carry it out flawlessly. But then she goes on to talk about Jesus, that Jesus is actually the hero of the story. We are not. What do, you, what do you think about just that section in general that I read to you? I just love this idea of uh, acknowledging how exhausting striving yes. and self-help and self-betterment can be because there's yes. no end to that. I can yes. always be better. I can always do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we all feel that it's one of the dangers of New Year's, quite frankly, when we're all like, I'm going to do these five things this year. And you're like, okay, that is already exhausting. And so this this kind of hamster wheel of, yes. uh, all right, now I'm going to do this better. I'm going to do this better. I'm going to keep you know, as opposed to I'm going to uh, be the person Christ has called me to be. I'm going to strive to be better. Like I'm mm-hmm. not going to just be like use that as license to be lazy, right? Uh, but I'm going to be secure in my uh, in my identity, who Christ has made me, who who Scripture calls me, and uh, live out of that will allow you to rest. It will allow you to not be um, so worked up about am I am I achieving? Am I? I think it's so helpful. It's so weird, Aubrey, because I, I read this and hear this so often, but sometimes it becomes white noise because then you yeah. start going about your day and you're like, what else? I got, I got to keep getting better. I got to keep mm-hmm. doing, I got to keep doing, I got to keep mm-hmm. doing. And it's exhausting. Yeah. And, uh, and so again, I think the more times we can hear this word, the better. I think the hard part too, where I struggle is, you know, you want to grow, mm-hmm. obviously, as a human being, as a Christian, as a parent, like, we don't want to be stagnant people. We want to go deeper and change and develop. 
Um, but there is somehow a nuance between that and what you're talking about, the striving, the hustling, what she's talking about in her book, the the constant need to self-improve and like never, ever land anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I do mm-hmm. feel like it. you talked about this just a second ago. It is something about knowing your identity in Christ and living from that approval, not for that approval. Mm. And I, you know, I wish I had like, oh, here's the solution. It's solved now. But I guess just the awareness of it and asking for the Lord's grace to live out of your identity, right. not for your identity is, is really the key. Yeah. Let, let, let me make two points about that. One, I, I believe there was a good book that came out in 2021 that kind of gets at this a little bit, speaks of living out of our identity. You may have heard of it, I think. What? <laughs> <laughs> is it a book? Is it a book called Known? How there believing who God says you are changes everything. Wow, there you go. Oh, that book go sounds that. amazing. There you go. But Aubrey, I'd also say on a more serious level, like also Jesus could have strived. Jesus could have been mm. like, listen, I've got three years. Uh, I'm. I've got a. You know, I've got a million things to accomplish. Uh, but what do we see Jesus regularly doing? We seeing him resting. We see yeah. him praying. We yeah. see him uh, disconnecting. Like. Uh, and we don't see him self-exalting, right? We see him living with humility. Like mm-hmm. we get so used to these attributes of Jesus that they begun they begin to become less um, surprising. Uh, but just kind of sit back and think about what did Jesus prioritize with his time? Uh, what did he prioritize during his time on earth? And I think we we start to see uh, those aren't often the things that I prioritize. Right. Uh, and, and I think we can be challenged by that because there was a humility. There was a pace to his life. There was uh, a perspective that I think uh, we can all kind of hold on to. Yeah, that that's that's such a good that's such a good reminder for all of us. In fact, just a Another word from uh, Ruth Show Simon's book. She she says this. She says Jesus didn't try to steal the show. He didn't try to improve on God's plan of salvation with addendum or flair or demand honor for the Savior he was. At every turn, Jesus wanted only to do what the Father purposed for him to do. No more, no less. Mm. Even as he faced brutal death on the cross, Jesus revealed his motivation and staying faithful to the work he'd been given. It was not in a pursuit of showing himself worthy or becoming his best self. It was this. And she goes on to list a few things. She says, Jesus was here to do God's will and not his own. Jesus was here to glorify God and not himself. Jesus was here that we might know everything is from God. And Jesus was here that we might know God's love. And of course, that's a difficult example for all of us to follow. But I definitely think, um, you know, as we start out the new year here, 2022, a good word for us to at least try to live more like Jesus in a way that we know we're here to point to God. Like John the Baptist, we've talked about, uh, you know, point to God and not point to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And this doesn't mean don't work hard. This there doesn't mean uh, don't do all you can to pay your bills and get by. This doesn't mean that's not, it's a perspective, right? It's a, it's a hierarchy. Like I can work 60, 70 hours a week and still have the right perspective in my life. I can work 30 hours and, and just waste my time away. Like this isn't about the number of hours necessarily. This isn't about those things. That's It's about having the perspective of Jesus is Lord. He is on the throne. He has called me, uh, 
you know, God's child, I'm God's child in him. I'm forgiven. I am accepted. Like I can live out of that. And then I can go work hard. I can go work two jobs to pay the bills. I can do whatever I need to do, but not allow those things to define me. The question is what defines me? Mm. And, and when, when it's our, just what we can accomplish, what we could do, then we're going to endlessly strive, endlessly do these things. And we're going to be left exhausted and not really sure which way to turn. Yeah, I think that's that's a good word. That's a good word for us as we close the show today, that this is not about not working hard. Like, look, you you provide for your family, you hustle, you do the things you need to do to pay the bills and put food on the table. Like God honors that. But you're right, Brian. It's it's when our identity is in the wrong things and we end up striving for approval rather than living from it. And I think that's the posture as as we look to Jesus and as we ask Jesus for his help, we can begin to live that way in a way that's freeing and not so burdensome. So we hope that conversation encourages you as you begin to think about your life and your posture in the new year. And we want to thank you for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.